this podcast, Ashok Srivastav, Chief Data Officer at Intuit, talks about the role of people, data, and technology in building successful data science organization. So, stay tuned. Welcome everyone to another episode of Future of Data podcast. Today we have with us a fascinating guest and I'm I'm very excited to talk to him, um, Ashok Srivastav. So he's a senior VP and chief data officer at Intuit, a brief bio. He he's a, uh, in, at Intuit, he's responsible for setting the vision and direction of large scale machine learning and AI across the enterprise to help power prosperity across the world. He's hiring hundreds of people in machine learning, AI and related areas at all levels. Previously, he was VP and big data and uh, AI systems and the chief data scientist at Verizon. He is an adjunct professor at Stanford in electrical engineering department and editor-in-chief of the AIA uh, Journal of Aerospace Information Systems. Ashok is also a fellow of IEEE, the American Association of Advancement of Science and the American Institute of Aeronautics and and Astronautics. Uh, Ashok has a range of business experience including service as senior director at Blue Martini Software and senior consultant at IBM. He has won numerous awards uh, including Distinguished Engineer Alumni Award, the NASA Exceptional Achievement Medal, IBM Golden Circle Award and the Department of Education Merit Fellowship and several fellowships from University of Colorado. Ashok holds a PhD in Electrical Engineering from University of Colorado at Boulder. With that, Ashok, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to speak to our, our, our audience. I am so happy to be here, Vishal, and I'm so looking forward to talking with you about all these areas of interest in big data, analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence. It's certainly one of the hot topics of the day, isn't it? That's that's good. I think that's that's great. And by the way, fascinating bio. I think when I was looking at your profile on on LinkedIn, I was blown away. Like uh, the depth of experience that you had. You had been in government sectors. You have been in service. Uh, you have been in product. You have been in hyper like hyper regulated telco sector and you have been into like again a, a, a SaaS product centric company so you have seen it all i think very few um, uh, executives that ended that sort of we spoke to in our show had been touching in all those all those areas and you pretty much fit that bill so i do appreciate you spending time so as as a start i i definitely want to know your like your journey what brought you to this point? Like if you can walk us through why you chose this field to all the way getting getting um, and explaining your experience, that would be really, really helpful. I'd be delighted to talk about it. And Vishal, thank you so much for the uh, very kind introduction and the kind words and so forth. It's really an honor for me to be here, to be able to talk with you and uh, the broader audience. So I get asked this question a lot. And the way I think about it, is I'm driven by curiosity about the world around me and the people around me. I am interested in this idea that we can have a more comprehensive understanding of the people and the world around us through the use of data and through the analysis of that data. And this is uh, not a new idea. This is kind of the genesis of the scientific revolution that happened many hundreds of years ago. Right. And so as you look back to the architects of science, as you look at Kepler, as you look at Isaac Newton, as you look at more modern day uh, scientists like uh, on the theoretical side for Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin and so forth. What you see are people who are extremely curious about the world around them, but they also have the, a deep ability to understand it through two things. First, through the development of sophisticated mathematical models. And second, the observational aspect of data, right? I, since I was a child, I was just amazed that people could learn about and express real things in the world through mathematics and through observational data. I'm still amazed by it. It's still a topic of conversation at my dinner table with my wife, my daughter, and anyone who cares to listen to because I, I'm always interested and I'm always thinking about it. So that's where kind of intellectually I started. And I started to uh, work in different areas. So my first job was in applied physics. Um, I worked at a place called National Institute of Standards and Technology in superconductivity. So I was kind of a, I think I was an undergraduate, maybe a uh, 
second year undergraduate student when I started working there. And my job was to analyze data from superconductors. It was super exciting because, of course, there were superconductors involved. We had helium, um, uh, liquid helium, liquid nitrogen, and these superconductors, and we're injecting 4,000 amps of current through filaments that were like that big. And so we had to build data analysis systems. I had an amazing mentor and boss who taught me kind of in the moment how to do it. And I am so thankful to him. I'm still in touch with him to this day. And so from there, I worked there um, you know, part-time for over nine years as I finished my degree. From there, I went on and I uh, uh, took my first job, long-term job at IBM. Um, where I started to get exposed to the business world. And I absolutely loved it. So I loved the idea that data and the analysis of data could actually translate into real results for real people that have real problems that they're dealing with. And so I, I started to work with people and understand what their worldview was. And I quickly also started to realize the importance of things like sales and marketing. And this was a transformational point for me because I could see that while data analysis, you know, we called it data mining back then, so data mining and machine learning and all these things were very valuable. The core issue was actually expressing those ideas to people who didn't know the subject matter. That was really what I saw. And so I became friends with and worked quite a lot with the sales team, so much so that, as you mentioned, I won the IBM Golden Circle Award, which was the top sales award at the company. So how does a guy who is, you know, an admitted geek, who is supposed to be sitting in the back room crunching numbers, how does he turn into somebody who is out there meeting with CEOs, CFOs, CTOs, and other C-level people in his real first job? How does that happen? Well, it was because I could see the strategic thinking and the sales and marketing and the people side of things were extremely important. And I really wanted to understand that. I had amazing mentors at IBM. What a great company and what a great experience. From there, I moved on to a startup called Blue Martini Software, where I translated that into a startup world. And um, I ran the analytical services practice there. It was a phenomenal experience. Gaining um, insight into the way e-commerce and advertising works. From there, I went to um, NASA. And NASA was, I tell you, a phenomenal experience. Um, what a great agency. Not only do they put uh, people on the moon, but they also spend their, dedicate their lives to understanding the world around them through the physical sciences, through aeronautics, through astronautics, and through the other areas that NASA is, um, is prevalent in. Um, this was an amazing experience for me in many ways. I look back on that as another transformational time because there I could see the interest of the public and ensuring that the taxpayer's money is spent in the interest of the public was very important. Spent a lot of time there doing data science, machine learning, running a big R&D program. And from there I went on to Verizon as their chief data scientist, built a team from scratch uh, that built big data and AI systems for the company. Um, that led to many uh, key acquisitions, such as the AOL acquisition, and then that acquisition led to a subsequent acquisition of Yahoo and so forth. So I got experience in M&A. I also spent time working with the startup community as a venture advisor, and now I'm here very fortunate as the SVP and Chief Data Officer at Intuit. And frankly, all of the places had a few things in common. Number one, people. So the teams that I worked with, the mentorship that I had, very, very valuable mentorship from people above me, around me, and um, who reported to me, critical. Number two, data, interesting, valuable data coming at varying speeds and different formats and all of that. And the third thing, the underlying technology, particularly the interest that I have in algorithms and the way algorithms can be used to solve the key issues that people address. So that was a rather long uh, description of uh, my journey, but um, I wanted to kind of give you a comprehensive view of what I've been doing and kind of the three things that I think are important. People, the technology, and the data. I think that's that's fascinating, Ashok, and, and thank you so, so much uh, for walking us through that journey. It's, it's remarkable, I think. And um, so 
let's let's talk about Intuit, right? So when um, I think one thing that that fascinates sort of I'm fascinated about is the amount of data Intuit deals with. Like almost uh, very soon, I'll be all over uh, my tech software trying to get my 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 entry in. What a complicated job! So, with that said, uh, what is a chief data officer at Intuit? Like, what's that role like? If you can walk us through, what does that mean? Very simply put, my job is to make sure that consumers such as yourself and tens of millions of people around the country and around the world have the best financial insights at the moment that they need it. And that requires a very, very sophisticated AI and machine learning program. Because in the ideal case, we would have mentors or advisors, financial advisors on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But that doesn't scale. And that actually doesn't take advantage of all of the data and all of the insights that a company like this has. So we want to generate those insights automatically in a privacy-preserving, anonymous fashion, and then provide it to you in such a way that you can take advantage of it. And that is a monumental task, one that I'm very excited about, one that I think that Intuit is uniquely positioned to solve. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, and and if you can walk us through, walk us through, like, uh, what does your team look like, and what's the dynamics of that? So the team um, is built of people who are data scientists who uh, work on algorithms, new deployments, and the mechanisms necessary to make those deployments live. There are AI machine learning engineers. So these are people who take algorithms, ensure that they're scaling, ensure that the cross-functional integrations are being done properly and um, at scale. Uh, there are people who are working more on the strategy and the program side to make sure that we know what we're building, why we're building it, how we're going to build it, and how we're going to deploy it. That's a very critical area. I spend a good deal of my time thinking about that strategy because, frankly, technology is something that we can all enjoy and appreciate. We can all learn it. But the strategy, where to invest, why to invest there, how to invest, that's where a good deal of my time goes. And frankly, the um, many members of my team think about that as well. Interesting. And I think, so one thing that I, 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 I think I've said previously as well that I really admire about your background is uh, the, the breadth of, of experience that you have, right? So you have worked again with, with Telco, you have worked with regulated Telco, you have worked with federal agency, you have worked with uh, a SaaS product company and almost like in, in all of, in most of those, you have created a, a, a team from ground up. You have built a practice on whatever, right? So you have really done, uh, went down to trenches and fixing those, those companies when it comes to data science. With that being said, like what are some of the, some of the, um, I would say commonalities and, and you briefly talked about it, that people uh, was really the, what, what forced, what sort of made you successful through and through. But what are some of the commonalities that you have seen? Because like one thing that's different from all these companies is pretty much everything, right? So besides there's people, right? So with that being said, uh, if running a data science practice, yeah. how can, uh, like what are some of, some, of the, some of your thoughts in that? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. Um, the people and the data and the technology is all there, but somehow it needs to be built out and scaled. And so the way I have tried to approach it is really from a customer-centric standpoint. Even when I was doing research and development, writing papers for the academic world, or being an editor-in-chief of a journal or something like that, I always tried to think about what's the need that I'm trying to address, and what's the need that the organization is trying to address. And that drives me to think about the strategy, right? Once you tell me you've got a problem, I have to figure out is this a problem that only you have? Is it a problem that's common to others? What's the commonality? And once we come to an understanding of that, then the question is, well, if there is a common understanding of the problem, what's the solution that we can come up with that will address that in a reasonable amount of time? So, and with a reasonable budget, right? So that's the way I tend to think about things. And I find that at Intuit and at many of the other places that I, I've been, that has been a very helpful catalyst in getting things done quickly and efficiently. And frankly, I know it's cliche, but then it comes down to the people that you have around you, 
the people that you hire to execute these ideas because the most important thing is that you hire the right people and you give them and empower them so that they can make decisions and execute, right? So it's not about one person, you know, it's not about me and like what I know and what I think and all that and so forth. It's really about bringing in the right people and helping them and and taking their advice and coming to a common understanding and then executing it flawlessly. Interesting. Again, uh, thank you so much for walking us through that. Uh, uh, beautiful. So one thing that, that we hear a lot from our, our interaction with executives at uh, data at, who are building up their own data science practices, their struggle, their constant struggle with the culture of the right? So it's the next shiny object uh, that probably, and, and then those guys are hired for it. They are well qualified to do, do their job, but then the, the culture comes in the middle uh, and it's, it's just a, a downward spiral somewhere, somewhere it's just a struggle back and forth. Now let's talk about a couple of, couple of your sort of um, uh, headaches uh, when, it, when it comes to, or, or challenges when it comes to working through so, so this, like different, different companies. What are some of, some of the challenges that you can recall um, and you can share that you have faced as, as, as an executive putting together a data science practice in a company? Yeah, so frankly, you touched on it, Vishal. It's the, I, I'd say one of the challenges is, um, you know, unreasonable expectations from reasonable technology, right? And so the idea that we can um, somehow solve all problems with the use of a deep learning neural network is one that's propagated by many, many people. And um, I tend not to think that way. I tend to think that, in fact, to solve large and complex problems. An algorithm is there and necessary, data is there and necessary, but it's really the entire fabric, the entirety of the ecosystem that needs to be built if you're really gonna solve a problem. And that means that you have to think about things from multiple standpoints, from multiple angles, and you have to set the right expectations, and you have to deliver on those expectations in a reasonable time and with a reasonable budget. And so, I tend to think of things in three phases, short-term, medium-term, long-term. The long-term is where there's a promise that's made and we have to be able to show measurable progress towards that promise. The medium-term are things that will get people excited and keep people kind of aligned to the long-term goals, but it's really the short-term benefit that you can show that's very critical and very important. And I'm really very lucky to have been part of organizations that had a similar viewpoint that wanted to ensure that we had real measurable return on investment for the money and the time that's being spent. Because frankly, if I don't see that myself, then I start to get a little concerned. It's like, okay, so I've been entrusted with a good deal of money, with a good deal of um, ability to influence, with a position and so forth. And if we don't execute on that, then it's going to be a problem and the problem is going to start from me because I'm going to be saying, look, we have to make sure that we're aligned and, and we're setting the right expectations. So um, that's the way I think about it. It's really about making sure that we're aligning to the big picture and making sure that the promises that are made are promises that can be kept and that we show that we're able to um, approach those promises in a reasonable amount of time. Interesting. So now let's go a bit, I think, and by the way, beautiful, uh, beautifully said, unexpect, uh, unreasonable expectation from reasonable, uh, from reasonable technologies, right? So what are some of the, some of the very tactical strategies that, that you saw working for you when it comes to justifying, like, what, like, and you were able to convince the leadership or like, what are some of the, some of the things that you think would, would really work for any aspiring technologist? Yeah. Who's yeah. the same struggle? It's a great question. So it's funny uh, to phrase it this way, but um, I go to the data. Hmm. I, um, so a data scientist saying that he or she goes to the data, you know, it, it seems a bit cliche, but frankly, we need to show it in the numbers. It can't be, um, you know, lofty goals, uh, cool PowerPoints or charisma that does it. It has to be in the data. And so I'll give you some real examples where, um, we have had 
the strategic plan where we say in, in the next uh, quarter we're going to accomplish this, six months we're going to do that, mm. and then um, you know have some longer term goal. But in the short term, the question is where are we going to generate the most uh, impact and how are we going to actually demonstrate that to a person who does not appreciate the complexities of machine learning, who doesn't care about the messiness of the data, who's trying to run a business and trying to scale that business. How are we going to prove it to him or her that what we're doing is reasonable and, <clears throat> excuse me, and is actually driving um, uh, a significant return? And that really changes it because now we're thinking from the customer standpoint as opposed to the data scientist standpoint. And then we say, okay, um, what we need to do is run uh, a set of experiments. And before the experiments are run, we need to set a threshold saying that if the performance exceeds this threshold, it's a success. And we need to get buy-in from the business person before we do that. And if we're able to achieve that, and we're able to explain why we're able to achieve it, and we're able to explain how we achieved it and discuss the repeatability of it, that gains tremendous confidence in me and my counterparts in the business side of things. I've been, frankly, on the business side of things also, thinking about it from that standpoint with my team saying, look, even though your ROC curve has an amazing area under it, it doesn't help me out because the platform needs this Kind of capability or because the team needs to have worked through some other uh, technological or business issues. So it really becomes a, a problem of thinking about the totality of the experience from the customer standpoint. Interesting, interesting. So, uh, and one more um, uh, point that I need your take on is um, your title, right? So Chief Data Officer. So I we, we saw the emergence of uh, Chief Analytics Officer and Chief Data Officer. What's your take on uh, some of the stark differences when it comes to chief data versus like or data officer versus a ways of analytics officer? Like, what are some of the what are some of the, what are the, some of the differences that you see or strategic differences? So, in my case, the world of AI, machine learning, and data in um, many real ways falls in my organization, and so I lead that effort. And to contrast that with other types of roles that you might find, for instance, at the C level, the CIO role. CTO, analytics officer role. Um, in my opinion, um, it's stewardship of the data and then mm. thinking about how the uh, corporation's data as well as other data sets can be equitably used in order to solve problems for the end consumer or the end small business. That's the way I view my role. And mm. the mechanism to do that is in my case, AI machine learning, and mm -hmm. broader company analytics. So I view analytics and AI and machine learning as points on a spectrum of activity. It's all the same thing, but there are different flavors of it. It's, I've likened it to the uh, electromagnetic spectrum. So if you think about mm -hmm. it, you've got light, and light is one thing. It's electromagnetic radiation, but there are different wavelengths. And Violet light and red light are actually not the same light. They're different, different wavelengths, but they still have many similar properties. In the same way, AI and machine learning and analytics are two points along a continuum. They have many things in common, but they're also different. And so understanding those differences, knowing when to use the different techniques and tools that we have available to ourselves, I think are very important. Interesting. And, and one more sort of... Uh interaction that I can recall from talking to a bunch of uh, data CDOs is their struggle with the data ownership, right? So they are put together to create an organization with, with some center of excellence around data. And they are relying on whether it, it comes to IT, whether it comes to like businesses for use cases in IT for data. And each and I think looking at your background, you have been coming from a ginormous uh, sized companies in, in, in their own sort of uh, uh, with, with very healthy and very, very thriving culture. What are like, how do you, how do you sort of uh, work through the ownership piece when it comes to be becoming a data steward? Uh, as, as you said that uh, to run the organization, what are some of, what are some of the directives um, that you think of you put together to sort of help run uh, these organizations? 
You know, for somebody to give you something, generally speaking in this world, they have to have a return, right? Mm. Uh, there's always a value exchange that occurs. And that's the standpoint from which I like to start and frankly end the conversation. So the beginning is a promise and the end is a result. And um, so the way it happens in different organizations is frankly very different. In um, my current role, the data stewardship principles are such that the data and uh, the, the, the way we at Intuit are operating with that data is going to be cross-functional and cross-organizational. We have the view that within the privacy and policies and the other governance policies that the company has, we have the view that if we're able to bring the data together and have a deeper understanding of the customer or small business, it would benefit that end user much more than if we didn't. And so that's the guiding principle. Mm -hmm. Frankly, at other places, it wasn't quite like that. At other places, the idea was that we need to prove the value, so we needed to acquire some data to do that, quickly prove the value, and then build upon that success and make the promises necessary to get access to new data sets. And in some cases, the privacy or the governance within the company did not allow data to come together, which was totally fine. And as a steward of the data, whatever portion of the data I had, I was very happy and wanting to respect those boundaries. Because um, while it might be in the corporate interest, while it might even be in the consumer's interest, if the governance policies and privacy policies don't allow it, then I don't want to try to make um, some drastic change to that. So I work very conservatively within the boundaries that are established with respect to regulation. You mentioned heavy regulation. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the places I've worked had uh, heavy regulation. I did not view that as a hindrance, frankly. I viewed that as an opportunity for us to build new algorithms, build scalable methods within the con con constraints that we were operating. Interesting, interesting. No, I think thank you so much for walking us through that. That, that. That's very, very, very helpful. And and other thing, uh, piece of information that, again, I liked, really liked about your profile was um, your ability to create uh, a team or you almost like putting together a practice all by yourself. What are, what are some of, some of the best practices when it comes to, so if, if suppose any wannabe, uh, uh, data leader is being told to put up a, put up a team together, what are some of the constraints or some of the, some of the best practices that you would suggest, uh, taking the play from your own personal playbook that would help any aspirers to sort of build a good team? Spend the time to hire the right people in the very beginning because they're going to be mm. the stewards, the ambassadors of the vision that you collectively put forward. So, um, you know, it's true that in many organizations I might have been the first or one of the first people hired, but there's a context, a broader context in each organization, even if it's a startup. Right? It's not the case that things just happen in the vacuum. And so being able to encompass that um, uh, larger ecosystem of ideas and then ensuring that the people that come in in the very beginning understand it, appreciate, appreciate it, and most importantly, imbibe it, I think is very important. Because then you can start to scale, and as a team, you can start to scale the ideas. And you also create a, a culture and a... And a a place where the best idea moves forward. Not necessarily your idea or my idea, but the best idea needs to move forward. And I've frankly seen that when we are able to create that culture and climate, people want to come and work in those places and they want to contribute. Because everyone has many opportunities to work in different companies, do different things, but the um, consolidation around a mission and the opportunity to contribute in a material way to that mission, not as, quote, a resource, but as a human being who is engaged and interested in driving towards that mission, I think is very important. I don't think about people as resources that are kind of here to complete a task and so forth. I mean, I understand that viewpoint, but I really think about people as individuals who are on a life journey who are going to spend a good deal of time working in a specific area and that they need and I need 
the opportunity to express our creativity at scale. And um, that's the kind of foundation that I want to build. And that's the type of organization that at least I would like to be part of. Interesting. And and now let's let's talk about let let's flip the coin. Like let's talk about the company's perspective. Like what are some of the ingredients of a a company that can build up a thriving data science practice? Like what are some of the ingredients that uh, you want the companies to have? And you briefly touch in in this response as well. But what do you uh, what do you think? Yeah. So it's hard for me to think of a company that couldn't do it. I can imagine that there's a spectrum, and some companies might have more difficult of a time than others. But fundamentally, it comes down to the willingness to make the uh, commitment and uh, uh, spend the funds, the, the money, and hire the right people to execute a vision and give them the opportunity to craft the vision and then to execute it. Those are the things that I think are necessary. And to the degree to which a company is not willing to do that, in my opinion, it's going to be much more difficult. Right. So what I mean by that is, let's start first with the investments that are necessary. Mm -hmm. The idea that um, we can uh, start with a, a relatively small experiment in a very confined area and then say, because that experiment is successful, therefore we need to create a whole uh, organization around data, I think is a little um, concerning. Right. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to make the right investment and that is going to mean that investments are made without an immediate return. We need to be okay with that. But it's contingent upon the people who come into the organization not to take advantage of that. They need to say, yeah, I'm being given, let's say, a quarter, two quarters, three quarters, whatever it is to deliver. But if I've been given two quarters, I should start seeing results myself within a quarter. right? And so we need to be our own strongest critics and our own strongest um, uh, uh, people who are looking at the data and making sure that we're making the uh, right investment and delivering on the promises that we're making. Because fundamentally, in technology, in business, in research and development, in academics, it's all about the promise that we make to ourselves and to our delivering on that promise. Interesting. So um, one more thing that uh, I definitely want your perspective on is um, that that ideal candidate, so-called, uh, that you really I think you 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 spoke briefly about that. So like you prefer people, folks who are driven by curiosity. So what is the what is the uh, a secret recipe or, or what is the recipe of a of a good candidate when it comes to coming in data science? Like how do you gauge that? Yeah, what a great question. So obviously, having a strong technical background and, and so forth, that goes without saying. But honestly, what I look for, assuming that that uh, need has been met, is uh, a flexible thinker. Hmm. Data science and machine learning, artificial intelligence, in my opinion, is a pursuit of uh, curiosity. And the only way that you that is being a flexible thinker. If you already have the right answer and you're already, uh, you can deploy it quickly and get an a, a solution out, it probably wasn't too difficult of a problem, right? And so flexibility of thinking and being able to adapt to changing environments with respect to data, technology, and people is extremely important. So I, when I'm hiring in the beginning of forming an organization, I'm looking for people who can think broadly and flexibly about things from many different perspectives. And that inherently, in my opinion, drives the need for diversity, right? So it's not diversity like we need to have, uh, you know, a certain ratio between different uh, groups of, of people. That's one way to think about diversity, and I think an important way. But more important, it's the diversity of thought. And that diversity of thought comes from people with different backgrounds. So they have to have the right technical you know, knowledge and, and expertise and, and business knowledge and, and so forth. But even if you have that, if you can't think broadly and deeply, hmm. you're going to find that you're not able to really scale. And so that's where I look. And I realize that it's not, I didn't say, well, you need to have a PhD in this field and then you need to have X years of experience in that and then 
work at three companies and then work at a, a brand name and so forth. I didn't say any of that because, frankly, I think that flexibility of thought and those things can be actually orthogonal. That's that's a that's a very wise statement. I I I do appreciate you sharing that. And and what do you think about this new emerging wave of data citizens, so called? Like, how much do you think? Um, so I like we see that there's a there's a huge element of creativity, and you pointed that out that that's missing in data science and sort of creating these use cases. And sometimes when you are coming from the technical end, uh, you miss out on like you are very hyper uh, sort of targeted towards the technicality in data, but the communication part is sort of, we still, almost everyone, every company is struggling to get get hold of that. What do you think about this wave of, uh, as, as you rightly said, that they are orthogonal, like that this trend of data citizens, like do they qualify to be uh, a good data science leaders uh, or data scientists or data science? What, what's your take on it? And um, when you say data citizen, what do you uh, mean by that? So it's, so it's basically it's so someone from business, so they don't have a PhD in in data in, in data, uh, uh, or or uh, they are not sort of physicists. They are not they're not coming from some very hyper academia and and coming uh -huh. from like what what do you, what do you think about? Oh, I think that they're extraordinarily valuable members of a team, and the person who has the PhD from the highest ranked organization is also part of the team, and so. Uh, the person who has the business background but no acquaintanceship with data is also an essential part of the team because what you find is that it's multiple sets of ideas and multiple ways of thinking about a problem that really lead to uh, strong and sustainable success, right? And um, that's why it, it, people who are coming from backgrounds that may not have data as a key part will play an important role. But that's not to say that you can just have those people and not have people who are knowledgeable about the data, the technologies, the algorithms, and so forth. You need to have both. And sometimes you can find people who do know both and can uh, think about both. And sometimes you find people who have a center of mass on one side or the other. And I think in all cases, it is fine. It's really about the team, which means it's really about the people. And it's really about the diversity of thought that can come forward in those Interesting, interesting. So uh, now I want to shift um, uh, slightly focus on Intuit, like if whatever you can share, right? So let's let's talk about, um, so you said you have a, a good enough focus on machine learning and AI, right? So what is AI to something, a company like Intuit? Like what, if you can, if you can sort of walk us through some of the use cases that, that you guys are working. Yeah, well, imagine a world in which uh, the computer, regardless of the um, endpoint that you're using, whether it's a laptop, whether it's your mobile phone, whether it's another uh, embedded device, can give you timely financial advice and insight without human intervention. Just imagine a world like that. That's the world that we're building at Intuit. That's the world that I think is necessary for consumers and small businesses to really enjoy the prosperity that they want and that they need, and that, frankly, in my opinion, that they deserve. And that is a mission that is going to encompass a huge number of areas. Not only AI and machine learning, that's relatively obvious. Not only data, that's obvious too. But also thinking about the customer's viewpoint and what he or she actually needs and what he or she actually is going to use, right? Those are difficult things to think about. That's where understanding and having that consumer and customer viewpoint is very critical. And frankly, as um, a new member of the team at Intuit, I started here, I think, four months ago, I can see that the company is highly dedicated to the idea that we should do what's best for the consumer, what's best for the small business what's best for that ecosystem. And um, I think it's a great position to be in um, as a leader in uh, the FinTech world, as a leader in the data world, to bring these areas together and to hopefully build a technology like I described. Interesting, interesting. So one, one more area sort of, when, when I think of, think of Intuit, like so I think about all these interesting softwares helping my business 
help help me do my business without the headache of sort of too much uh, human intervention right so when you as an as an ai expert or as as a ai head um think about creating products that are like creating ai product for something like intuit like how do you de- how do you decide uh, or what what are your qualifiers to say which product deserves an ai and which product doesn't and like what are some of some of the thinking if you can share yeah so um again it uh, goes back to the uh return that we're going to get and the return doesn't necessarily mm. mean the corporate return it, could, it in most cases is the return to the consumer or the end user that's mm. the way we we determine things and frankly to give you an idea of how um much we're driving this through the organization we've created essentially a method by which each milestone each element of work that the team is working on has associated with it um a set of metrics that anyone could understand that's kind of a, a key point so it doesn't say you know auc 0. equals 0.8 plus or minus 5% something it doesn't say anything mm-hmm. like that even though some people might understand it if we all don't understand it in my opinion it's not too useful so um mm-hmm. what we do is we write very clear metrics and those metrics are understandable to the entire company hopefully and then we publish those and then we therefore hold our, ourselves accountable to it and that way we're able to push out not only the ideas but also the way we're going to measure the value of the ideas and also we can rationalize how we're doing prioritization because if we get together in a room and we say look this is going to reduce the amount of work that a customer has by 10% and this other thing is going to it by 18% when we say well it looks like the 18% is the better thing to do but we should investigate maybe that 18% has a lot of variance around it maybe it has a lot of uncertainty so that's where the strategic thinking and then also the ability to evaluate data and information becomes very important and um i do that along with many colleagues uh within the company uh in order to make sure that we have the right prioritization of work and then mm-hmm. we try to execute that's interesting so i think so whenever whenever we hear about ais i think one thing that quote that comes to our mind is that henry ford's that uh, uh, if you ask people they would want faster horses right so that's that's what ai is 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 there like it can it can suggest you incremental you know if we talk about innovation uh, uh, slightly so do you think ai can help create some disruptive trends or some disruptive innovations yet or or do you think it's just a, it it will help us incrementally getting there i think it's both and frankly if you think about the short term medium term long term horizon that i described mm-hmm. in the short term it's going to be more tactical in nature it's mm-hmm. going to be incremental improvements it's going to be um addressing things that we all knew could be done but hadn't done yet mm-hmm. but the long term things can and definitely are transformational and we see that happening in our own in this industry as well as in industries across the board where um ai and machine learning are making such fundamental changes to the way uh people live their lives that certainly call it disruptive and it's very exciting to be part of that and you know my remark earlier about um unreasonable expectations and reasonable technology i think um you know i'd like to reflect on that a little bit more so we see some of these amazing results coming out autonomous cars uh autonomous flying aircraft uh, mm-hmm. many types of uh areas just in the world of autonomy let's say and it sets an expectation that wow we can do many things and because sometimes we may not completely understand the technology we might think wow this is an unreasonable technology it can do anything when in fact it has limitations So when I say something is reasonable technology that's from the standpoint of a um an algorithm writer a technologist who says yeah I understand kind of how that thing works it's amazing but it's still boundable it's still something that I can understand and appreciate the complexity behind it but also com- appreciate the limitations behind it what it can't do we can be become so enamored with what it can do that we can start to think that wow if it can do that it can do anything when in fact it's actually not the case humans are still the most adaptable the most creative machines that we have and i anticipate that's going to be the case for 
quite a long time. Interesting. No, I think uh, thank you for so much for for sharing your views on that. And uh, we're not we're now almost on, at the end of our conversation. So one thing I definitely want your perspective on is your secret of success, right? So if you can share what has been some of your ingredients that really helped you succeed throughout this because i think your background is phenomenal it's like going through so many different companies so many different cultures so many different sort of uh, uh, the way they operate like what is what what kept you sane um so first of all again very kind words i i uh, have been very fortunate in my life as well as in my career and um it fundamentally comes down to the teams that you're operating in and the people that you surround yourself with. You need to, in my opinion, you need to have people who will challenge the status quo, challenge the ideas that you put forward. You need to have people who are thought leaders in their own world and be able to understand and appreciate and, and encompass and imbibe their ideas. And then you need to have people who can take those ideas, come up with the best ones, and then execute. And so it all comes down to the people. And I've been very fortunate from you know working in a lab with um, what was it two three people at NIST mm. to now running very large organizations. I can tell you that every place I've been very very fortunate to be surrounded by people who are excellent at what they do and who have the ability to transmit that excellence to other people. So um, whatever success I've had, I think it's because uh, of the fortune that I've had, good fortune that I've had to be you know, in good teams. That's, that's great. Good to know. And, and one thing that we ask all the guests uh, is the, uh, to share their favorite read. Like if they read books or what would they like to share with our, with our folks? Uh, do you have any favorite read that, that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. So... I like to read a wide variety of books. Um, you know, I read books in physics and economics and the kind of things that you'd expect. But frankly, some of the books that I enjoy the most are books in other fields. For instance, in anthropology, archaeology, geography, and a book that comes to mind. It's been out for a while now. But um, a gentleman named Jared Diamond, who I think is a professor at UCLA, wrote mm -hmm many books. One of them is called Guns, Germs, and Steel that came out many years ago. And uh, also several years ago, another book called Collapse. And the reason that I bring these two books up is because, number one, he is an eminent scholar, phenomenal, just a phenomenal researcher in his world. I find it inspiring just to read a, a page of his book because he so deftly encompasses so many ideas from such diverse standpoints and writes it down so beautifully. I mean, what a gift this, um, this person has. But fundamentally, I think the teachings in these books are very important. The idea that we are part of a broader ecosystem, that outside of us influence our lives through ways that we don't understand, that people and that societies evolve due to issues that they face that are far beyond their ability to influence and that we're all part of one large community that inhabits a very small planet near a distant star right these are things that um he and many other scholars have put forward that i find very compelling because we need to think in this society in this day and age we need to think about others and not ourselves so much and i think that he is one of the top people in thinking and kind of promulgating those types of ideas interesting no, i think uh, beautifully said i think even even in, in our conversation all the uh, successful leaders that that we spoke with i think one of the one of the common trait had been that now they are on different avenues looking for ideas and sort of contributing so i think the your point of uh, reading the content that's not your in your field gives you that that sort of openness and perspective that you wouldn't get being reading and sort of staying in your own domain and sort of getting hyper deep, hyper deep in sort of those areas. So again, Ashok, thank you so, so, so much uh, for, for being super candid and helping us uh, understand your leadership perspective and understand um, what Intuit is doing. Uh, so it's, 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 it's remarkable. Before we go, I, I definitely want your uh, 
perspective if you have any closing uh, remark for our listeners for our viewers that you would like to share yeah um absolutely so first of all uh, thank you again for giving me the opportunity to talk i hope this was useful for you and for the listenership that you have it's an amazing organization that you've built um it comes down to three things it's the people it's the data and it's the technology and implicit in that the promise that you make to the stakeholders that you serve and that's i would say a summary of the way i think about things i would say that's a fair summary of the way i've tried to approach things across uh, my career and i look forward to that i'm very optimistic about the future mm. i really think that um regardless of the problems that we might see in society today i think we have a tremendous future ahead of us as a society and as uh, a species frankly around the world and we're trying to build those technologies i would welcome people out there who are interested in working here and joining the team to contact me directly i'm easily found on the web to go to our careers website careers.intuit.com and let us know if you're interested i welcome you all to join our team and help us achieve the mission that I described beautiful with that uh, thank you so much ashok i think it's you're always welcome on the show and love to have you back uh, uh, discussing your journey in into it and how what success you are you are gaining there and uh, to our listeners as ashok said if you're looking uh, for a role into it they have plenty of openings go to career.intuit.com and or reach out to me i'll 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 forward you uh, to to ashok's team so with that said thank you so much ashok thank you for your time thank you so much vishal uh, it was a great honor and i look forward to talking to you again Goodbye. Uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable. Don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once. That's it. Then I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach, like I'm so worthless. Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down. I hope I'm not up on a.